0: Welcome to Voices in Health Law, the podcast of the American Bar Association Health Law Section. I am your host, Jeff Warsberg from Norton Rose Fulbright. My guests today are John Kelly of Barnes & Thornburg and Julie Nielsen of Berkeley Research Group. John, Julie, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you sharing your, your expertise and, and insights. Uh, why don't I turn it over to you to introduce yourself, Julie?
1: Sure, thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here today. I'm Julie Nielsen, I'm a managing director Uh, with Berkeley Research Group in our Tampa office. And I spend the majority of my time working in the Medicare risk adjustment arena, um, which we're going to get into in much more detail today. So I think I will just leave it at that and turn it over to John.
2: Great. Thanks, Julie. It's a pleasure, uh, Jeff and Julie, to always speak with you too. John Kelly, I am a chair of the healthcare practice at Barnes & Thornburg. In my prior life, I was at the Department of Justice for around a decade where I finished my time there as the assistant chief for healthcare fraud. I've been in healthcare a long time, you know, everything from compliance to regulatory investigations and litigation. So I've been fortunate to learn this area and often learning, uh, Jeff, I'll tell you at the hands of Julie and her <laughs> colleagues at BRG, and it's a great space to be in. And we're going to talk about why it's such an important space to be
0: in. Terrific. And and I should note, BRG, a longtime sponsor of the section and the Managed Care Interest Group as well. So we appreciate their support. So before we begin, the ABA Managed Care Institute coming up October 11th and 12th in Chicago. So plenty of time to register. want to encourage everyone to, to join us for what will be a phenomenal two days. We're going to be previewing today your session, which is called The Future is Now, Managed Care Enforcement Trends and Compliance Best Practices. So your session's title indicates that this is no longer something that may happen in the future, but it's something that health and plans and their counsel should be concerned about now. Can you elaborate on the areas of managed care where you're seeing an increase in government enforcement activity?
2: Yeah, Julie, I guess I can start and, and well, first of all, I would encourage people to go to this conference and and it's true, it is now, you can pick your sort of catchy title, what you don't know will hurt you, the future is not whatever it is, but that's managed care. <laughs> and, and And look, to the lawyers out there listening, if you want your career to crumble and just focus on fee for service, keep doing what you're doing. But if not, come to the Managed Care Institute with the ABA. But but no, what's so interesting about this area, and, and Julie knows this because she's heard me say it, I stumbled into this area probably nine years ago and worked very closely with Julie and her team on it. And I will tell you, we didn't know much about it. Maybe 10 years ago, it was a false claims act case. And the prosecutors, I will tell you, struggled with it and ultimately declined to intervene because it was so challenging to understand this new world to them. The Relators Council didn't really understand the distinction between fee-for-service and managed care risk adjustment. And we were all learning on the fly. And now it's a very different ballgame. And it's a different ballgame because you have seen this massive transition of Medicare beneficiaries into the managed care Medicare Advantage risk adjustment space, right? Julie, I think what it's doubled in the last 10 years. Is that right?
1: Right. Yes, it sure has. Yeah, we've been working in or I've been working in it for the past 13 years, I want to say. But yeah, so in managed care and government managed care, like we've seen this massive influx of attention from enforcement agencies on risk adjustment. And just for those of you listening who aren't that familiar with risk adjustment, Basically, risk adjustment is a way that Medicare Advantage plans are paid premiums by CMS to the plans to essentially cover the cost of medical services that are incurred by their members. Why is it called risk adjustment? Basically, the premiums are calculated based on at the individual member level and based on what's called the health status of the individual member. The health status is essentially determined by diagnosis codes that are submitted for those members on medical claims or encounters. And so essentially the sicker the member, the higher the premium and vice versa. The less sick the member, the lesser the premium. So if you even think back, you know, to fee for service, what does this mean with diagnosis coding when a diagnosis code affects payment? What it means is it opens the door to potential opportunities for overcoding or upcoding whether intentional or unintentional for providers and the Medicare Advantage plans that are involved.
2: Yeah, and it's really been an evolution, Jeff, and I think that's a great way to describe it because what we're seeing from an enforcement perspective, right, again, going back a decade ago till today, everyone's just more sophisticated in terms of understanding it on the enforcement side, relator side, defense counsel, the government data analytics have gotten more sophisticated. A lot of false claims act cases in the last few years have been unsealed. I think there might be 26 or 28 unsealed. We don't know how, how many, yeah. right? Am I right on that? Am I, I think it's 30. It?
1: 30. 30. I was close. <laughs> um,
2: and but we don't know how many are sitting there unsealed, right? And are still being reviewed. And what's interesting about it is now the government's coming out very publicly and talking about, hey, not only do we have these false claims at cases, but guess what? The criminal stuff is coming. You know, we're seeing it get more brazen, more egregious. The conduct is getting more more damaging to the Medicare trust fund and to, you know, the, the intent that folks have. And again, we really do see this as the wave of the future, just not not just as a, a payer plan in terms of a system, but also in terms of the enforcement. So it's, it's a really interesting time in this space.
0: So let let's turn to that and you, you alluded to it a little bit already but but what do you think it is that is driving the government interest in enforcement in this space
1: yeah I can I can start John I think it's twofold first thing John already mentioned is just the immense growth in Medicare Advantage enrollment I looked at back at since 2010 which was the year that risk adjustment was actually fully implemented as part of the premium process the Medicare beneficiaries have doubled they've gone from 25 percent of total Medicare beneficiaries to 50 per just over this year alone. And if you kind of turn that into a dollars perspective for the first year, this year, Medicare Advantage spending makes sense because more than 50% of the enrollment is going to outspend fee for service and will be near $500 billion. So if you kind of think about it, Medicare makes up 10, or 10 to 12% of the annual federal budget, and if half of it is Medicare Advantage, clearly there's a lot of interest. The other part of it, which I, I mentioned before, is it's a relatively new program. I mean, 2010 is when it was fully implemented. So with any new kind of reimbursement program that goes into effect, there are always people who try to find loopholes. And those that don't try to find loopholes get, get accused of it anyway. But anyway, it's just it's it took some time for it to ramp up and essentially now has the full attention of not only the DOJ, but also the OIG.
2: Yeah. And in that vein, I mean, we're seeing a lot of reports being issued out and the folks at HHS OIG, not only are they focused on it, but boy, they really understand it, right? And they're really crunching the data and the reports are great learning tools. You know, you hate to sort of say it that way, but they really are. I mean, if you're from a compliance perspective, if you're a lawyer that wants to do work in this space, read these reports. They're very thorough they explain risk adjustment in an incredibly detailed way and and identify a lot of different codes that they find problematic, right? So if you're a compliance officer and you're involved in this space, you need to be looking at these and understanding, oh, hey, they're finding issues here or they're finding an issue over there. And we've got to make sure we're not a part of that down the road.
0: We do seem to be entering a space where all of a sudden Medicare Advantage isn't given the deference that it kind of has been for, for several years. And it is gaining a lot more scrutiny and, and MedPAC has certainly put out double report and they criticize the program as not actually saving money uh, for Medicare when you factor in risk adjustment. So it, it would make sense that all of a sudden we're worried about the trust fund. As, as you noted, this is an area that the government could cost could them back. In terms of the enforcement activity, can you talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing and who the primary agencies are that, that are involved?
2: I'll kick off. Yeah. I mean, DOJ, for sure. Um, OIG both very common, right? They work hand in hand. And again, getting they're openly talking about getting more active, both in terms of the data and the criminal side. And obviously, they're doing their audits and they're identifying issues there, too. So you're seeing a lot of that that's driving a lot of this False Claims Act work and coming from relators as well, of course. So we're seeing a lot of that activity there. I, I have not personally been involved in on the state side, Julie, but again, you wouldn't see that in the Medicare Advantage space. But okay. you know, we are seeing some activity just managed care generally on the state side now too. So again, we focus all the time on federal. That's where the big hits seem to be, but we're seeing some activity in the managed care space on the state side as well.
1: Right. And I'll just kind of going back to, so the Medicare risk adjustment space, OIG and DOJ, and I think we'll leave DOJ for a minute because that's probably the the better part of the conversation, but kind of circling back to what John was saying about OIG, I'm not going to preview it right here, but you're saying that they're kind of coming out, talking more about it. I know that Christy Graham recently gave a speech at the RISE conference in Nashville, which is a national Medicare advantage. And it's probably worth listening to because um, I haven't even listened to the whole thing. I was not present, but I have heard that she kind of outlines a lot of theories that they may have. And it's kind of, it was interesting to hear. So we'll leave it at that. But going back to the OIG, <laughs> I mean, under her direction, you know, they have John mentioned these these audit reports that they've done, and they actually just came out recently. They created a managed care enforcement website. So you, you literally Google OIG managed care enforcement. It takes you to its own dedicated webpage, covers Medicare and Medicaid, and then for Medicare, fee-for-service and Medicare Advantage. But if you just open up the audit reports for Medicare Advantage, there are 28 reports on there that the oldest one is from 2019, and then it skips two years, and the next one is from 2021. So essentially, there have been 27 different audit reports put out by OIG in the last two years, and it's where they've gone in and done, they call them high-risk diagnosis code audits, where they literally take a plan's data and run it and identify the member or the population of members who have what they term to be high-risk diagnosis codes. So it's members who were coded with an acute stroke or an acute myocardial infarction in a physician office, but were never hospitalized. Or it's people who have cancer diagnoses that aren't on active chemotherapy or other type of cancer treatment. And you know the thing and John said, you could kind of use this as a roadmap for compliance because clearly it's, it's low-hanging fruit. They're looking for these things. And in these reports, you can just pick up one. And you know they have a—it's a small sample of members. Around these samples are probably all around 200 members, but it's a much larger population. And within these reports, they extrapolate it and they extrapolate into the millions, tens of millions, and hundreds of millions. So it's it's good to look. And then the other area that OIG has been focused in its evaluations and investigations is in two different areas, and it's like two different kind of what we'll call them program activities. It's chart reviews and health risk assessments. And I think we can kind of, maybe we'll we'll talk about that when we talk about DOJ enforcement, because those are the subject also of some of the enforcement actions by DOJ.
0: Well, that, that's a perfect segue. John, former federal prosecutor, do you wanna kind of take us down that road and, and how and why the DOJ brings these cases and maybe a little bit of an overview of the, the False Claims Act as well?
2: Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, certainly the False Claims Act, right? It's civil. It's a lower standard. And and that's where you've seen most activity thus far. As we mentioned before, you're going to see in the future here, they are not shy about saying criminal cases are coming And, and, you know, certainly driven by intent. But what you really do see is this effort, as Julie's describing, I mean, people have figured out, right, if you start to artificially inflate, essentially, the coding that's happening, and if it's a form of upcoding, right, and you start to artificially inflate how sick your patient population is, it's driving up the risk adjustment, which is driving up the payment. And, and there's a lot of things that they talk about when you look through Again, going back to the OIG reports, right? And and because they're identifying the issues that DOJ is then pursuing. One of the big ones is a one-way chart review. And you, you see that a lot where folks are going, and let's say you, you know, you're looking at your charts. You're a big provider, health system, whatever it may be, you're looking at your charts and you're adding codes to it. And all you're doing is adding, and you're adding codes that risk adjust. And those codes are driving up the risk adjustment score. Well, that, that's a problem, of course, right? Because you should also be taking away the codes that aren't supported.
1: That's and the government's you know, theory, John.
2: Yes, yes. I'm sorry. It's the government's
1: <laughs> right. It's the government <laughs> theory. Good point.
2: Oh my God, where's my defense attorney hat? I just lost it for a second. Um, but no, it it right, and that and that's the theory is that you shouldn't just see things going in; you should also see things coming out. And and what we try to tell our client, and I, you know, I'm hoping Julie will agree with this, but when we look at these cases, it's okay to code right? There's nothing wrong with coding an accurate diagnosis code, right? If someone's sick, if someone has sinned, you, you diagnose it and you code it, but it has to be accurate. I mean, that's sort of the mantra, right? To your, to, if you're doing a training, if you're talking compliance, it's accurate coding, accurate coding. And you have to have support in the record. And Julie touched on that, right? If you're a cancer patient, but you don't have anything in the record about chemotherapy treatment or any kind of drugs that you would normally see someone taking, that's a problem. And they might look at that and say, nope, sorry, that's that's not a supported code. I mean, Julie, do you agree? With, I mean, I always feel like that's kind of the, the, the messaging, at least when we're talking to our clients, is really about okay to code, just make sure it's accurate and supported.
1: Right, right, absolutely. And I think a key point for those listening who aren't incredibly familiar with risk adjustment, which is why. There are such things as retrospective chart reviews of going back through provider charts and, you know, identifying conditions that were documented, but weren't actually coded and then going ahead and coding and submitting those conditions is that the risk adjustment clock restarts on January 1st of every year. So if you're, you know, a Medicare member and on December 31st, you have diabetes and COPD and chronic kidney disease on January 1st, you no longer have those things. So, you know, the plans, I mean, the whole goal of risk adjustment is to completely and accurately code your members so that you're able to cover the cost of their care and, you know, know what care they need, because if they're not coded with it, you don't know that they necessarily have it. So you don't know what to provide to them. You know, the chart reviews are, are interesting. There are many, several cases out there right now where the government, as John mentioned, the government's theory is that under the False Claims Act, when they open the chart. So the, let me explain these chart reviews a little bit more. They're ma- they're mainly blind chart reviews, which, what, what does that mean? That means that essentially the plans are going out or providers, sometimes it's the provider groups going out and collecting charts. And again, going through like, were there conditions that these members have that are documented? They clearly have them in the medical records that they weren't reported. Well, they're basically just having you know, coders, whether it's a vendor or an internal coder, go through and recode those charts and they're identifying new codes from that. Um, they're not necessarily assessing those charts to look at codes that had been submitted on the claims and whether they were supported in the medical record documentation, but they have many other compliance activities that do provider data validation reviews and other things where they are looking two ways, it's just as part of their retrospective chart review process, it might not be what is coined a two-way look. And it's not required. I mean, it's interesting because in the Affordable Care Act, in risk adjustment in the Affordable Care Act, as part of the audits that the plans have to do themselves each year, they're required to do a two-way review. But CMS has never required that for Medicare Advantage plans and has left it to the plans. To basically determine what kind of risk adjustment activities and compliance activities, you know, they want to undertake.
2: Yeah. And and Julie, I think in that vein too, another great example of that, right, is addendum. There's nothing wrong with using addendum, right? And coming in Not after enough. the fact and doing that. But this is another area where you've seen a number of cases where, where they're accusing folks of coming in and, and sort of recreating these addendum after the fact. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Right, um, so so you know they're they're digging deep and looking, and and I do think I'll, I'll give my you know sponsorship to BRG here for a second. I mean, this is why, as a lawyer, I mean, we obviously do a lot of work in this space as if you're a healthcare fraud lawyer, but you need someone like a Julie right, who comes in who understands that data, who understands how to crunch it and work with it and understands the chart review piece, because at the end of the day, you're getting down to the patient level when it comes to the coding. It's not just, oh, hey, we filed a fee-for-service claim and, oops, we got an overpayment, let's pay it back. It's way more complicated than that. And, Julie, am I doing that justice? I hope Mm -hmm. I am.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and and some of it, too, is um, there's another few cases um, where the government is looking at... um, diagnoses that were made in a home setting. So um, as part of the Medicare Advantage plan, members are entitled to an annual wellness visit. And as part of that, they encourage a health risk assessment, which is essentially either bringing the member into the office to do it there or going to a member's home. And in the member's home, you can look at things like you know, fall risk and screen them for all sorts of, of risks. And you go over their medications and reconcile those But there are, you know, some of the government's theories on that is that there are diagnoses that are being made in the home for the first time for a member that the government's position is that's impossible. Like this member, how can you diagnose CDOPD in the home when there was no spirometry done or a chest x-ray or anything like that? And so it'll be interesting to see how those play out because those actually get those, I, I think those... Clearly, I mean, based on the allegations, they go beyond coding to actually medical decision making, which will be very interesting to see how they play out. Because these are, you know, credentialed providers who are going to members' homes or bringing them in the office, assessing them for their conditions and making diagnoses. And, you know, the the government is challenging that.
0: Yeah, I think one of the interesting points that the OIG has raised about that, too, is what happens after you go into their home and you code these things. Are you actually referring them to proper care? Right. Are you utilizing this data to help the beneficiaries or are you literally just using it to to increase your, your risk adjustment score? Exactly, so, yeah, um, and to
1: your point, from a compliance perspective, just real quick, I think it was a 2016 call letter that CMS, the proposed rule came out and they basically, the proposed rule was to do away with accepting diagnosis. So you can do the in home assessments, but they weren't gonna accept diagnosis codes from those assessments for risk adjustment purposes, and they never finalized that rule and instead came out with a list of 13 best practices for plans and providers to follow when conducting these in-home health risk assessments. So from a compliance perspective, that's a great resource to be able to make sure if you're conducting them that, you know, you're following kind of what CMS has adopted as best practices.
0: So you mentioned there, there have been about 30 cases unsealed at this point. Have any of these been been resolved?
2: A a number of them have been resolved to the tune of about $800 million so far, at least on the False Claims Act side. The largest was a $270 million settlement. I can't can't say the name out loud because it's a client, but certainly it, it was a healthcare company that had to deal with that. But there's been a few real big ones in the last few years, and I think that's another interesting point when you look at the trends that we're talking about you know, it started out a little bit smaller. Now the last couple have been really big numbers on the False Claims Act side. So again, is it sophistication? Is it ingress aggressiveness? I don't know what is causing that other than we're just starting to see more of these get filed and more come unsealed. And and I think it's going to be very interesting to see where things go, which is exactly why, Jeff, you should come to the conference.
1: Exactly. Learn well, about the, it. Agreed. The interesting thing, none of them have been tried yet. I will add that. Like that's, not one has gone okay. to trial. There are some that are slated for, I think, the earliest is twenty twenty six, but none of them have actually gone to trial yet. Which, you know, from a compliance perspective, again, which are tips that we'll we'll be giving at the conference, is you know one of the things if you're in this business, like you want to be following these cases because once they start, especially if 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 a court of law makes a decision on them, it could kind of change the landscape of how how plans of providers and vendors even operate in this area.
2: And, and even, right, Jeff, and, and as, as I'm sure you you know, and I know Julie knows too, if you, if you were filing these cases recently, right, there was a lot of dust up over, is there really an overpayment in Medicare Advantage? Is it even possible, right? And there was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things going on in the courts with that, and that's been resolved now. So I think, um, again, that might be one of the ones that's heading to trial. We'll see.
0: So I'm going to ask you your takeaways from your upcoming presentation with the caveat, that's anyone listening. Just because you're getting the takeaways, you're not getting the beef of what, why these are the takeaways. So you still have to come to the the conference, October 11th and 12th in Chicago. But uh, John, Julie, what will some of the takeaways be from your presentation?
2: Oh, I think Julie should lead that.
1: Perfect. Thanks, John. Um, no, and I'm, I'm not going to give anything away here, to be honest with you. I mean, the, the key, the we'll we'll say the objective of the session is to learn more about it, why it's important to your business, whether you're working on the provider side or the payer side or the vendor side, and really kind of wrap up in talking about things from a compliance perspective that can be done to try to mitigate the risk of ending up in one of these FCA cases or defending one of these FCA cases. To you know, essentially, like I've spent, what, like said, 13 years, John, you're nine or 10, You know, just going through and seeing, following these cases, having clients in this area and just ways that a compliance program can be designed around these areas. I mean, this is so provider and vendor driven that that's really a key area that has to have great oversight, I will say, and just being prepared and knowing the landscape and being able to be a little nimble and change with the changing landscape. And I'll leave it at that.
2: Yeah, no, and, and the government's position, right? I mean, this isn't something where you can just put your head in the sand. Even if you know there's a whole chain, a whole line of data and money flowing up and down, uh, and lots of parties involved, as as Julie just mentioned, and everyone has responsibility in the government's mind, right, to be managing this, monitoring this, making sure things are accurate. So from again, from a compliance perspective, and we all know how important compliance is today uh, in healthcare, and from the government's perspective you got to be on top of this. So that's why I think this conference and and the information that's going to be, you know, shared there through a lot of different panels is going to be
1: beneficial. Right. One one other final teaser is that we do have a third panelist in our session who happens to be a whistleblower attorney. So he'll have some interesting insights as well that you'll all want to hear.
2: Yes, he will. Ed Baker folks will be joining us. And so (laughs) he, uh,
1: (laughs) <laughs> you, you watch
2: us all spar a little bit with that, but uh, no, it, it brings a really, it's its good to get that perspective. You get a lot of different points of view, and I think that's important and fair. So it will be fun.
0: Well, John Kelly of Farns & Thornburg, Julie Nielsen of Berkeley Research Group, thank you both so much for your time, your expertise. Look forward to seeing you both in Chicago. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Voices in Health Law. Bye-bye. Thank you. And now, a word from our sponsors.
2: The Health Law Section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and VMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Pinnacle Health.